We have a 97% placement rate. So we have a lot of success in placing people in our industry. I mean, and, and a lot of that's just because our industry is really hungry right now for talent. And so if we can bring them somebody who's motivated, they've stuck with us for 18 days, they can pass a drug screen. Um, they have, you know, eight industry recognized credentials. Hey, this is a valuable person, you know? And so, so we've had a lot of success with that program. The cool thing about that program, Keith, is it actually started with Arthur Blank and the Atlanta Falcons. You've been in Atlanta now for a while, and you'll recall back in 2014, Arthur Blank and City of Atlanta decided to build this new stadium called Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And Arthur uh, wanted to put people to work. He wanted to put specifically local residents to work on that project, on Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And so we, we actually built this program, our pre-apprenticeship program, for that specific purpose, to take local residents on the west side of Atlanta, train them very quickly. And, and the reason that's important is when people are looking for a new career or a new job, they might not want to invest six months or a year's worth of time, right? They want, they want something pretty quickly. And so we, we compressed our training as much as we could. We got it down into 18 days. Welcome to the Skill Stadium, a podcast for the skilled trades, where you can learn about the opportunities and benefits of working in the skilled trades from business owners, hiring managers, and the hardworking, talented professionals. And now your host, Keith Williams. Welcome to the Skill Stadium podcast, episode 110. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Keith Williams. Every week, we feature professionals in the skilled trades, business owners, educators, giving real-world advice. I have three requests. If you enjoyed the podcast and it brought you value, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star rating, write a review, share one thing you enjoyed or learned about the podcast. Your support means the world to me. All right. Today's guest grew up in St. Augustine, Florida. He attended Georgia Southern and graduated with a degree in political science. While at Georgia Southern, he worked as a sports writer. My guest is a nonprofit executive with over 29 years experience. He is proud of the fact that he has a master's graduate from Rapport Leadership International. He also has earned a National Association for Minority Contractors Hard Hat Award. He also has earned Construction Users Roundtable Workforce Development Award. During my guest's free time, he enjoys watching his daughter compete in pageants and watching his son play baseball. Please welcome Scott Scheller to the Skill Stadium Podcast. Scott, how are you today? I am doing great, Keith. Good to see you, man. Good to be with you here live on your uh, podcast. I've, I've followed your work for years now, and I really admire what you're doing, and I'm just honored to be with you today. Excellent. Scott, one of the things I admired that you do, and, I, and, and you're a family man, uh, and, and I'm familiar with this, is uh, you were saying that one of the things you enjoy doing is going to your daughter's pageants and your son's baseball games. So I imagine that takes up a lot of your time because I'm sure you're going in different directions. It does. It does, Keith. But I love it, man. I look forward to it every weekend. You know, this weekend, for example, my son has a baseball game and I'm already looking at the schedule, trying to figure out where he's going to be and how we're going to get there. And then my daughter has pageants coming up in November down in Florida. So we're already making plans for that. So I live for that stuff and it's a it's a huge part of my life and, and, I, and I love it. So 
thank you for lifting that up. Oh, definitely. And, and I know I have a son who plays baseball, so I know travel baseball. I'm sure your son might be, I'm going to assume travel baseball if you're looking at the schedule. That's, that's a serious time commitment, I know. <laughs> and I imagine you and your wife have to divide and conquer. Absolutely. You know what I love about it, Keith, and, and you probably do too. I love watching my son work really hard and then watching him, you know, perform in games and, and, you know, baseball, you're going to fail 70% of the time. Right. And so, I mean, even the best fail 70% of the time. And so it, it's interesting to watch him deal with the failure and watch him deal with the success and watch him work, you know, really hard. And same thing with my daughter, she works really hard on her pageants and it's always fun to watch her compete, you know, in those pageants. So definitely, definitely. And, you know, you definitely get two different perspectives in terms of activities because they are very different, obviously. <laughs> they are. They definitely are. Definitely. So, Scott, you know, I looked at, you know, your background and I'm kind of curious why you decided to, because, you know, you were writing in college for a sports newspaper. You did sports writing. And I find that kind of fascinating because that's a, I find that that's a very specific niche. I mean, sports writing is, you know, it's sports. And so I'm curious how you ended up in a career in nonprofit education, because they're very different, as, as I'm sure you're aware. Absolutely. Well, Keith, you know, life is a bit like a, like a stream, right? You kind of, you get in the stream and you kind of go with the flow. Sometimes you, you fight the flow a little bit, but sometimes you go with it. And for me, the whole sports writing thing was just, you know, I love sports and I love to write. And it was the perfect marriage of those two things. I really needed a job while I was in college. And I was thinking, oh, well, I'll go, you know, work at McDonald's or, or Burger King or, you know, the, the typical college job. And, and my mom actually found this job in the newspaper. It was listed it said they were looking for a sports writer for a daily paper. And she said, you should go do this. It's like, mom, they're looking for a professional writer. I'm just, a, you know, I did some writing at my high school paper and that sort of thing. But, but Keith, I, I read a lot of sports pages growing up and I'm a big believer. If you can read it, if you read it a lot, you can write it. You know, and so um, and so that, that's what it was. It was a marriage of two things that I love, you know, sports and writing. And, and, it, and it paid well, too, especially for a college job. And so that was a job I actually did through all four years of college at Georgia Southern University. I worked full time and I went to college you know, full time. So so I was busy. It kept me out of trouble is what I like to tell people. <laughs> but, you know, when that was over, I, I realized, you know, I don't want to do this all my life. It wasn't really a career. And so I started looking around and I realized I really wanted to be in construction. And, and I think the main reason for that is it's, it runs in my family. My, my grandfather was a, a residential developer in Florida, and I used to watch him build and I would help him build a little bit. And I just always admired how he would take this empty land and create something with his own two hands, you know, nothing into something. And it was, he, he was a contractor back when contractors did it all, right? I mean, it, it, there was none of this sub and out stuff. He was, he was doing all the work. He was clearing the trees off the land. He was pouring the foundations. He was doing electrical plumbing all the way up to the shingles on the roof. And, and I was just around that growing up. And, and I realized after I got my degree, and after I finished my whole sports writing thing, I really wanted to work in the construction industry. And, and I, initially I was thinking I wanted to go through an apprenticeship program and become a carpenter or an electrician. But my good friend at the AGC uh, called me, uh, Mike Dunham, you, you know, Mike, probably Keith. He called me and said, hey, we have this opportunity as director of education and safety, you know, with our organization. And he said, you know, with your knowledge of the industry and with your communication skills, we feel like it would be a really good fit. And so I interviewed and that that's really, that's how I got started in the world of nonprofit 
you know, education. It wasn't like I woke up one day and said, I'm going to go work in nonprofit education. It, yeah. The opportunity presented itself and, you know, and I, I learned more about the job and, and, and I got it fortunately. And I worked with uh, Mike Dunham and AGC for a couple of years. And, and that's ultimately what led me into what I'm doing today. So. Definitely. Also, I think another thing too is the relationships you build makes a big difference because, you know, that opportunity came because of a relationship. Also think your sports writing, writing skills, don't underestimate that. That is, it, it is so valuable today because there are not a lot of people who can write well, who have that skill set. So that is a tremendous asset wherever you go. You're exactly right. And I, that's what I tell people, you know, develop a skill that other people aren't good at, you know, because then you'll always be in demand or other people aren't good at, or maybe they don't want to do it, whatever, whatever it is, it's going to put you in high demand if you can do it. Right. And you're exactly right. There aren't a lot of people who can write really well. And so if you can do it, you're always going to have opportunities. You know, everybody needs a a writer or someone with writing skills. And so, yeah, you are exactly right. Definitely. So tell us about your programs and, you know, the programs you have and who you serve. Yeah. So Construction Ready, the best way to think about it, Keith, is we we serve two different groups, right? So we serve young people in our in our schools, K through 12. We have elementary programming, middle school programming and high school programming uh, here in Georgia. We're actually starting to get into Florida as well. But we work with high school students to help them get the training and credentials they need to go to work in our industry. And we've done that for many years, over 20 years, we've been working in the high school space. But recently we figured out that you really have to start younger than high school. You have to get to our, to our students, to our young people before they get to high school, because oftentimes by the time they get to high school, they've formed their opinion, you know, about construction and and it may not be favorable. Right. And so you want to get to them when they're in middle school, or even we've pushed down into elementary school because we've figured out that, hey, yeah, if you can get a young person excited about working with their hands or, you know, driving a, a nail with a, a hammer, you know, and, and helping them understand the power of creation and the power of building and just what, you know, what, how rewarding that is, you know, to be able to do that. And we figured out that if we start at a younger age, it just serves us really well. It, it, the students seem to be more receptive when they're in elementary school or middle school. And then also the parents are more receptive, right? So by the time you're a parent of a high school student, you kind of have everything figured out, right? Little Johnny or Mary, they're good. You, you already have a plan for them, you know, when they get to high school. But elementary school, we found that parents are, are still pretty open to the idea of little Johnny or little Susie, you know, b- actually building and creating. And they see how much excitement it brings to yes. their child. They see that, hey, this is something they're focused on. This is something they enjoy. And they tend to be more supportive of it than they might be. The, the parents tend to be more supportive of it than they might be later on in their child's uh, school career. And so so that's a big part of what we do, Keith, is we work in the school space. We call it our K-12 work. And then, then we also have an adult program, an 18-plus program that we call our Construction Ready Pre-Apprenticeship Program. And what that's for is people who want to change their careers. Maybe they're doing something that they don't enjoy and they want to change they want to change direction. And so this is a, a our pre-apprenticeship is a four-week program that they can come into and they can earn industry recognized credentials up to eight different industry recognized credentials and then we help them connect with an employer right so they go through 18 days of training and then 
we connect them with one of our employer partners and, and the employer partner will hire them you know, into a full-time position. We have a 97% placement rate. So we have a lot of success in placing people in our industry. Um, I mean, and, and a lot of that's just because our industry is really hungry right now for talent. And so if we can bring them somebody who's motivated, they've stuck with us for 18 days, they can pass a drug screen, they have, you know, eight industry recognized credentials. Hey, this is a valuable person, you know, and so so we've had a lot of success with that program. The cool thing about that program, Keith, is it actually started with Arthur Blank and the Atlanta Falcons. You've been in Atlanta now for a while, and you'll recall back in 2014, Arthur Blank and City of Atlanta decided to build this new stadium called Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And Arthur uh, wanted to put people to work. He wanted to put specifically local residents to work on that project on Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And so we we actually built this program, our pre-apprenticeship program, for that specific purpose, to take local residents on the west side of Atlanta, train them very quickly. And, and the reason that's important is when people are looking for a new career or a new job, they might not want to invest six months or a year's worth of time, right? They want to, they want something pretty quickly. And so we we compressed our training as much as we could. We got it down into 18 days. Can I ask you one thing? Sorry to interrupt you. How did you do that? How did you compress the program? I think that's important for people to know. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So what we did, Keith, we, we knew that the ultimate goal wasn't just to train people and credential them. We knew the ultimate goal was to place them with our employers. And so what we did is we gathered those employers in a room. It was actually at the Georgia World Congress Center. We, we gathered 30 of the largest construction employers in Metro Atlanta. And we said, hey, we have this vision to put people to work very quickly in our industry. How long would it take? Well, first of all, what training and credentials do they need to have in order for you to hire them? And they started listing things. They said, hey, OSHA 10 hour would be really valuable. Uh, CPR first aid would be really valuable. It was a lot of safety related things. Uh, in fact, about 30% of our pre-apprenticeship program is safety related. And then the second most valuable thing were all of the soft skills or employability skills. So we started looking at things like, okay, make sure people can show up on time, make sure they're drug free, you know, make sure they can follow direction and all of that. And so that's another third of our program is just the basic employability skills. And then the third thing was just some basic you know, hand tools and power tools, making sure that they know at least the fundamentals of our industry, hand tools, power tools, print reading, you know, that sort of thing. And so that's the other third of our training. But but to answer your question, we were able to compress it by talking to the employers. We said, hey, what do they need to know? And, and then how quickly do you think we can teach them realistically? And we said, we, we said we'd kind of like to do it in four weeks if we could, because, you know, that's, we want to make it fast, but we don't want to make it so fast that it's, it's not valuable. And they said, yeah, we think you can do it. If, if you go eight hours a day, five days a week, you know, that's 40 hours a week for four weeks, 160 hours. We think you can do all of those important things in about four weeks. And so that's, that's how we did it, Keith. And it, that's a, that's a really good question. It was a really important part of the development of our program was that we engaged employers on the front end. Right. And then they also, the other cool thing about doing that is all of those employers now took ownership in the program. They believed, rightfully so, that it was their program. They helped us create it. And so they were eager to support it, eager to hire our graduates. And here we are, you know, eight years later, we've placed over 1,500 people, you know, in our industry, 1,500 people 
through that program that we started with Arthur Blank and the Atlanta Falcons and our employers on the west side of Atlanta. And that's that's 1,500 people who are getting good paying jobs who are probably maybe in retail or in lower paying jobs because nobody changes jobs to do worse off. Nobody's making a good living and say, hey, I'm going to go down and make less money. So I got to believe everybody who's gone through that program is doing better than they were doing before. I'm going to make that assumption. I'm just going to assume that because that's just nobody, you know, nobody really changes to do worse off. So that's 1500 lives that are tremendously changed. Maybe their families are changed. Like, so the impact I know is tremendous. It's not just the jobs, it's the lives that you're changing. And you're an extension of these companies training program. That's essentially you guys are partners. That's exactly you're telling right. Here's what we need. You go and you train them. That's exactly right. We And we're on the front end of that cycle, right? We're out in the communities finding people who might want to work in our industry and then helping them get, you know, get their, their mindset right, you know, letting them know about the different opportunities that are available. And, and you're exactly right. We've, we've taken people making, you know, eight, $9 an hour. And they oftentimes out of our program, they start around $15 an hour. But the amazing story is, you know, if they stay in our industry for any period of time, I mean, we have students who've been in our industry now for seven or eight years and they're making six figures. You know, I'll, I'll share some stories with you, but it's amazing to see that, that you know, they can start out and you, you know this from our industry, you can climb as high as you want to climb in the construction industry. You can, you know, you can start out at $15 an hour, but if you want to own your own business one day, that is within the realm of possibility in the construction yes, industry. It is. And we've seen that too. We've seen people who've started their own construction businesses and they started with us, you know, in an entry level job and they're already running their own businesses now. So it's really, it's extremely rewarding work, as you can imagine, to take people and help them, you know, find a rewarding career and, and have people reaching out six, seven years later saying, thank you, you know, thank you for this opportunity. Thank, thanks for all you did for me and for my family. And, and it's, it is extremely rewarding and, and I love what I do. Yeah. And Scott, you know, another thing too, when you talk about the business, people starting a business, Atlanta is a great market for that because you know, the housing industry is taken off here. Georgia is a state that is very business friendly. And if you have an internet connection and a cell phone and the skill sets and decent people skills, you can start small. We're not talking like a multi-million dollar construction company right off the bat. You can start as a one-man truck with one other person. And as long as somebody's paying you to fix or do some work, you have a legitimate business. And there are always going to be people, whether it's to fix their something in their house, whether it's to fix something commercially for their building, somebody's willing to pay you if you have these skills. So I just want people to know it's not as far reached when you talk about doing a business. I just wanted to kind of clarify that because a lot of people think about a business, just think about some big multi-million dollar, and then most people will say, oh, that's impossible. But we're talking about if you're just getting started, just maybe a one person truck, you know, it's realistic if you know what you're doing. And if they've worked for a company, they've already witnessed how the business works. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that they're like, hey, I could do this for myself. Do you offer any support for them when they're trying to do that? Yes. Most of the folks who've started, well, all the folks who started their own business have been, you know, it's been very small businesses, you know, fix it, you know, home renovation type businesses or truck, you know, small trucking company, maybe it's one or two trucks. But yes, I mean, that that's absolutely what we see. And, and we see it pretty often. Yeah. 
No, I believe it because uh, I'll tell you, I'm out and about and I see a lot of trucks with like, uh, you know, um, mom and pop type of trucks, businesses, small businesses. I see a ton of them every day when I'm driving around Metro Atlanta. So all of those are small businesses. They've got their phone number and some social media links. Some of them don't even have a website, but they're in business and somebody's paying. Those trucks are not driving around just for the fun of it. It's expensive as gas is. They're on their way to sub. They're on their way to a job. They're on their way to do some work. So, you know, they, that that's the backbone of our economy. A lot of people don't realize there are more. Most of the jobs are in small businesses, not in the big sectors that are in terms that are employing people. It's small businesses that are employing the majority of the workforce. So, what you're doing is, is tremendous in terms of helping the economy too. Yeah, I really love how your programs serve the economy. Can you tell us a little bit more about? you know, the range of salaries somebody might expect just coming out? Because if I'm just new to this and I'm just coming yes. in, what am I going to make possibly? Just a range, not exact salary. Yeah, absolutely. So out of our pre-apprenticeship program, what we're seeing right now, we, we've seen um, an increase over the last few years just because of the market and the demand and everything. But we're seeing right around $15 an hour for, okay. our, for our graduates, entry-level pay. That's somebody without any prior construction experience. And they go through our four-week program. They can come out making about $15 an hour, which translates to about $30,000 a year you know, without overtime. Okay. And then what's interesting is if you do have any sort of construction experience or any related experience, you know, maybe it's not construction, but maybe it's manufacturing or something that's very similar to construction, we'll see even higher pay. We'll see forty to 50000 a year, sometimes straight out of our program based on any prior experience that you bring in. But then, as I mentioned earlier, I think the most exciting thing is that's just the first step of the ladder. We've had graduates from five, six, seven years ago who are making over six figures now. You know, the best example that one of my favorite success stories is Ian Miller. He came through our program at Westside Works back in 2014. He actually, Keith, he came out of a correctional center. He had actually served 10 years of, uh, of prison time. When he was 16 years old, he went into prison and he spent 10 years until he was 26. And then he came to our program and he got a job straight out of our program with Holder Construction Company to help build Mercedes-Benz Stadium. He was building concrete forms at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. In fact, the cool thing, Keith, they ended up, when Coca-Cola announced that they were the official soft drink partner of Mercedes-Benz Stadium, they chose Ian to be in their commercial to announce that partnership. And it's so cool. I, the, I've, I can see the commercial in my mind. It was on TV for a long time. Ian is up on top of one of the columns that he helped form at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And they flew a, a Coca-Cola machine, a, a vending machine up on top of that, that column. And he's up there taking it, taking a Coke out of the machine and drinking it. And um, so, so, but the cool thing is he's still working with Holder Construction Company. In fact, I just saw him about three weeks ago. He was here in Atlanta and he came over to our office to say hi and just kind of update us on what was going on. But he's still working with Holder. He's on a project now over in Huntsville, Alabama, building a data center with, with Holder. And he's, you know, he's on path to become a superintendent with Holder Construction Company. And, and you know the industry well. I mean, superintendents with Holder make over easily over 100000 in some cases, $200,000 a year. So yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. And, but we have a, a ton of stories like that. So, so the short answer to your question is anywhere from $15 an hour up over you know, six figures, uh, just based on how much experience you have in the industry. 
how do you help people who have been incarcerated? Because we know that there's sometimes there's a bias against them. And how do you help prepare them to get through that, to address it? Because it's unfortunate, but we do live in a world where people will pass judgment or maybe not give you that opportunity. Is Do you do anything to help prepare them or how they can communicate, say, okay, here's what happened, here's how, you know, how do you prepare them for those possible challenges? We do. So a couple of answers to that question. Number one, our industry is really a pretty tolerant industry when it comes to backgrounds. At least that, that's been my experience over the last seven years or so. People will ask us, you know, how are you able to place so many people with backgrounds, you know, through your program? And, you know, we can take some of the credit, but honestly, most of the credit goes to our employers. They just tend to be, you know, a pretty accepting, you know, group of, of, of people in an accepting industry in terms of hiring people with backgrounds. At least that's been our experience. But we do have we do have nonprofit partners that we work with that come in and meet with our students and talk about, you know, how to approach their interview. And, you know, most of the time the advice is just to be very, you know, very transparent, you know, in the conversation with the employer. Tell them, you know, about the mistake you made. Tell them about, you know, where where you've, you know, where you've served, how much time you've served. But tell them, hey, I'm ready to make a change. And what we found, Keith, is that, you know, we track retention. We we keep up with our students after placement, and, and our retention rates are about seventy percent at one year, about 70% of our graduates are still working in the industry at one year. But here's the interesting thing, Keith, we found that people with backgrounds tend to have the best retention rates. They seem to be more motivated than the average graduate. And I think it's because, you know, they've been, they've been on the other side, right? They've been in a correctional facility and they've probably been wondering to themselves, hey, am I ever going to get another opportunity and so they're less likely to blow that opportunity or do something that's going to cause them to lose that opportunity because I think they just, they value it a little bit more than the average person. And at least, so that's been our experience. And we've, you know, haven't looked at it lately, but I would say of that 1500 that we've placed, probably 30% have had some sort of background, uh, either felony or misdemeanor. And so 30% of 1,500, that's, you know, close to 500 people that, that we've helped. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, generally that population tend to stick really well in our industry and do really well from a retention standpoint. It makes sense because you think about it, if you've been incarcerated and you've lost your freedom, I'm sure they have a great appreciation that, you know, I've never been to prison, that none of us, if you haven't been to prison, I guess you don't understand what it's like to lose your freedom. So I would imagine they have a great deal of appreciation for that. And that's probably why you're seeing that high retention rate amongst them, because somebody gave them another opportunity. I also believe in life, you should give people a second chance. If you make a mistake, who knows when you made the mistake or what happened? Give them a second chance. If if they've served their time and they're out, let them have, they got to have the ability to make a living and so that they don't end up back in prison. And so, yeah, I would imagine that, that they are probably a lot more grateful than the average person who hasn't experienced what they've experienced. Yes, sir. That's been our experience for sure. Yeah. Now, one other thing too, that you had made mention of earlier is that I like the fact that you're getting to parents are a lot more open-minded at younger ages because I do see challenges and stigmas 
of the skill trades and construction uh, because I, I think people don't understand it or know it or they have plans for their when their kids get older. Talk to me about how you've been able to uh, connect with the schools and build relationships with the schools because the schools are not always open to to the skill trades. I mean, I've, I've been in communication with the schools and it, it sometimes is challenging. So I'm curious how you've been able to get into these schools and build those relationships. Yeah. So one thing to keep in mind is we've been at this for a long time, right? So our organization started back in 1993. So gosh, I mean, we're coming up on 30 years of doing this work. And so we have built relationships with schools over all of those years. And, and, and I'll even back up a little bit. We built relationships with schools, but we've also built a good relationship with the Georgia Department of Education. Um, and so that has helped a lot. But and generally, our approach is to work with what's called career and technical education. You're probably familiar with that term, Keith, but it, it means vo it's vocational education, right? It's what we used to call vocational education. 15 or so years ago, they changed vocational to career and technical education. And so that's our preferred avenue as we find those career and tech ed programs. There are actually in Georgia, there are over 180 high school construction programs, for example, that we've helped to establish and we help support. And so that's always our starting point is we go to those programs first. And then we do a cool thing. We work underneath those programs in the feeder schools, right? So every high school has what's called a feeder school. That would be the middle school that feeds students in the high school. So we'll go to that local middle school and we'll say, hey, you know, you have a high school construction program across the street, right? And your students are going to go into that program. Let us talk to your students about, you know, careers in construction or let us teach a class, you know, at the middle school level. And usually those schools are pretty receptive, the ones, the feeder schools that are going into the high schools. And so we, we tend to be strategic about it. We don't take a shotgun approach of just going and talking to any high school because the reality, Keith, is there are high schools that will not give you the time of day. You say that, hey, I'm here to talk about the skilled trades or construction. You're not going to get a return call, right? You're certainly not going to get your foot in the door. And so yeah. and sometimes that has to do with, you know, the location of the school. Sometimes you're sometimes you're more affluent communities where 100 percent of their kids are going to go get a four year degree. You know, they're just not going to give you the time of day. And so it's kind of like spinning in the wind. So we just don't you know waste our time at those schools. But but that's generally our approach. I will tell you that it seems I've been at this for, you know, since 98. So 23 years, 24 years. Lately, I would say within the last two to three years, it seems like the skilled trades have really become more interesting to people. We're getting a lot more, you know. Why do you think that is? Why do I think that is? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's a couple things. I think that the whole student loan crisis, I think there are so many people, young people who've taken on all this student debt, student loan debt, and they're not able to get a job, right? And they're certainly not able to get a job that's going to allow them to pay off that debt. And so I think people are starting, parents and, and students are starting to question that formula, you know, that old formula of go take on student loan debt, go get a college degree that isn't going to prepare you for a career and certainly isn't going to prepare you for a job that's going to help you pay off that loan. And I think they're looking at that on one hand and they're looking, they're hearing people like us talk about this great money, six figures in the skilled trades without a college degree. And they're saying maybe that formula isn't the right formula. So I think that's a, a big part of it, number one. And then also uh, just the shortage. You know, I think the shortage of skilled workers has led to an increase in pay. You know, 
I think that companies are actually paying better now than they used to. And I think that's also getting the attention of people. And then the third thing I would lift up is in a strange way, I think the pandemic really highlighted the importance of the skilled trades, right? We were the skilled trades. If you were a plumber or an electrician, you were an essential worker and you kept working because people still need electricity. Even during a pandemic, people still need electricity. They still need lights. They still need heating and air conditioning. They still need water and, and sewage and, and everything. And so those essential workers kept working through the pandemic. And I think that also was noticed by people. They're like, hey, I was laid off and I wasn't able to work. But all these, how do I become an essential worker, right? And so they started looking yeah. around and it's like, hey, this skilled trades, these are essential workers. I don't know about you, Keith. I want to be an essential worker, you know. <laughs> and and so I'll tell I, you, when you're in your home, your plumbing, people's plumbing started going down even more because they were in their house yes. using the electric, using the plumbing. So those plumbers got really busy because if you have a plumbing issue, that's not something you're putting off. no. No. Usually something you need to fix pretty quickly. Yes. And you're, and you're not asking how much is this going to cost? You're saying, how fast can you get here, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did an interview with the gentleman a couple of years ago, and he was a uh, plumber, retired plumber, and he got a call on Thanksgiving. And his wife so, told him, don't you go anywhere. He said, I'll tell the guy I'll come out there for $500 just to come out. And he'll probably say, forget it. We'll do it another day. And she said, okay. And the guy said, yes, come out here. <laughs> so he's charged $500 just to go out. And I think like another $100 to do the job. And he might've been there an hour, but he just, you know, the person agreed to it. They needed their plumbing fix. So I just say that to say that, you know, it's, there's, somebody's always willing to pay you to fix their the essentials in their home, their plumbing, their electric, usually plumbing. <laughs> That's right. You're exactly right. Yeah. Let me ask you another question. When you look at the skilled trades, construction, traditionally, there's been a lack of diversity regards to women and minorities. You know, one of the things I'm impressed when I look at your website and your social media posts, I see a lot of diversity. Are you seeing more companies embrace diversity? What are you hearing and what are you seeing with companies you work with? Absolutely. You know, it's a lot like the whole money, you know, piece of this, right? So I think companies have figured out that they can't address this labor shortage with one hand tied behind their back, right? And what I mean by one hand tied behind their back is we're mostly a male and quite honestly, white male dominated industry. We have been for a long time, but the good news is that's changing. And I think that's driven by the labor shortage, right? I think that companies have realized that hey, we can't continue just being a white male dominated industry. We've got to reach, we've got to proactively reach out to women and we need to proactively reach out to more people of color to truly address this labor shortage. And so that's been our strategy as an organization. We realize we have to get more diverse, you know, as an industry and we have to be more creative about, you know, how we recruit people into our industry. And so for us, one example is we've set up all of our pre-apprenticeship programs in largely, you know, lower socioeconomic areas, more diverse areas. We intentionally set those programs up in those neighborhoods so that we would attract more people of color into our programs. And so we've had, we've had a lot of success with that. Like you said, over 90% of our pre-apprenticeship graduates have been people of color. And we've, we're also seeing an increase in terms of the number of females in our program. We're up to, we're up to about 27%, which is still not where it needs to be. You know, honestly, it needs to be closer to 50%. But when, 
when only 6% of our industry are female, you know, in the skilled trades, 27% is definitely an improvement, right? And so that is, we're very encouraged by what we're seeing. We're seeing people, we're seeing women more interested in our industry. We're seeing more people of color coming into our industry. And the industry is receptive because they have to be, Keith. I mean, they they realize that, hey, if we're only attracting white males in our industry, there's no way we're going to get the work done that needs to be done. And so we have to be more receptive, more accommodating in general. And so I've been really encouraged by what we're seeing with our programming, at least. And it does encourage, you see, the way I see it is it encourages other minorities and women to pursue the profession because they see, well, well, she did it or he did it. Oh, okay. I guess I can do it. You know, so I, I do think that that, that is positive and you've got to go find talent you can't, like you said, you can't always just look in one place because then you're sitting there going, you know, there's only so many resources and so many people in one place. If you have multiple places to go, you're going to increase your chances of being successful because you're going to be grabbing more talent than somebody else who's just saying, I'm just going to fish over here. So, and it does jump out. People notice it. Like I said, like I I've, I was seeing it on your website and I was like, wow, this is because I just didn't see that a lot. You know, just if I was an outsider, you know, and even though, I haven't worked in the skill trades, but I've sort of served the skill trades. So that jumped out at me right away. And I would imagine if I was someone who was just going into the skill trades, people do have stereotypes and perceptions and that counters that. So it does encourage more minorities and more women to pursue careers. And I'm glad the companies are, because the companies have to lead the way too, because they have to be saying, okay, we're, we're going to take these folks on. And I think at the end of the day, if you can do the work, you can do the work. And that's really what matters. That's exactly so. right. That's now we're we're encouraged, and there, but there are always more things we can be doing, you know. And we one of the new things we're looking at is setting up an ambassador program where our graduates or people like Michael Russell and David Moody and leaders in our industry, you know, who are people of color, can formally get more involved in our programs and, and come in and speak to those middle schools and elementary schools, right? Because we have a thing we like to say in our organization, you have to see it to be it. And it means a lot of different things, right? And so one obvious thing is we do site tours where we take students out, you know, to see our industry, you know, on site. And that's that's one example. But another example is if you're a young African-American, in order for you to be able to see yourself in an industry, you have to see other people who look like you, right? You have to see other people who look like you thriving in our industry. And so that's another example of you have to see it to be it. You have to see other people who look like you in order to have the faith and hope that you also can do it, that you also can thrive in our industry. And so we're always looking for creative ways to be more proactive uh, about, you know, getting more people of color into the industry. And we're, and I, I appreciate you recognizing that. And that is a big part of what we do as an organization. Yeah, no, I, I've, like I said, I've been following you and watching your social media posts. And like I said, that jumped out to me right away. I took notice of that and said, hmm, you know, cause I know the numbers I've talked to people about it and, you know, you guys are, are actually living it and doing something about it. So I'm impressed with that. And, I, and I've heard, you know, I, I've heard organizations talk about they can't find people. And I'm saying, well, you know, you do sometimes have to broaden your search. And I see that you guys are doing that. Final question for you. What does success look like for you as an organization? Where do you see yourself going? What does success for your organization look like? Yeah, so, so our vision is that the skilled trades are as celebrated as four-year degrees, right? And so that's that's how we'll know when we've succeeded is that people are as proud 
and excited about going into the skilled trades as they are about going to Emory University or Georgia Tech or wherever. And, and the cool thing, Keith, is, you know, after all these years of doing this work, I'm finally starting to see that. And it's a really good feeling. And I'm not saying that we're responsible for that as an organization, but I do feel like we've contributed and, you know, in, in, at least in some small way. And, and so success for us is that that's the norm in our society, you know, that people are just as excited about pursuing, you know, career as a welder or an electrician or a plumber. And they're making as big a deal about that on social media as they are whenever they get accepted to Emory University or they get accepted to Georgia Tech. That, that will be success for us is when those skilled trade opportunities are as celebrated as those four-year degrees are. That's our, that's our ultimate vision. I agree. I agree. I also think the fact that the numbers, that salary and the success that people are having will eventually lead to that. Yes. That's when, it, when, that's when this turns around because I don't think a lot of people realize the average parent or those parents who are sending their kids off to college, who are locked in on college, they don't know what the options are here. They're, they're, I'm certain they're not aware of what the salaries are. That's right. If you ask those parents. In our job, and, and you do a great job of it as well, Keith, but our, our job is to get that word out, you know, just let, let people know. To me, that's our, that's our number one job and responsibility is to make people aware of these opportunities and specifically the kind of money and the kind of career opportunities that are available. And once we do that, to your point, uh, people are going to be flooding into our industry and we'll be in a really good place in the skilled trades. Definitely, definitely. Well, Scott, I thank you so much for being on the Skill Stadium podcast. Please share how people can find you and your organization. Yes, the best way is our website, uh, constructionready.org, www.constructionready.org. We're also on all the social channels, uh, Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and all those. We're working on a TikTok page. We're not quite there, but we're gonna we're even gonna be on TikTok here before too long. But but yeah, all the social channels, our website, uh, please check us out and, and like us and follow us and all that good stuff. Folks, Scott Scheller, President and CEO of Construction Ready. Scott, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yes, sir, Keith. Thank you, man. I really appreciate you and all the work that you're doing to promote the skilled trades. We appreciate you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening to Skill Stadium. It would mean so much if you left a review on iTunes and told your family and friends about the podcast.